Hey there, everyone. So this is Jack. I am just popping in before this episode for a couple of things. First of all, don't know if you noticed, we didn't upload an episode last week. That is because Jason and I are now switching to every other week. It's because honestly, it's just getting depressing to research all this stuff every week, at least for me. Also, our lives are crazy. Secondly, uh, this is actually one of our first two episodes we ever recorded but never released. So we released the first one like a while ago. That was uh, about my cabinet. And then this one is actually about sanctions and stuff. So there's actually a lot of good information in here. And honestly, it still holds up in my eyes. It's uh, good stuff to know kind of forever. Uh, I think I'm getting off on topic. I think I'm going to let me and Jason kind of just take it away. Go ahead, us from the past. I think facts started when it all started. It's always okay to punch a Nazi. You're telling me that I can use this phone for more than checking Facebook and Grindr on the go? Fuck you and fuck Mars. Things are the best they've ever been. So the only way to go is down. Oh, I built a straw man argument. Here's the thing, though. This shit still stinks. So that's when, that's when women's rights really mattered was back then. A podcast by the people, for the people, and of the people. Uh, hey! <laughs> Welcome to uh, episode two of The Devil Wears Pravda. I'm Jason. I'm Jack. And uh, it seems that our topic here, uh, or actually our, I guess our podcast rather, couldn't come at a better time. And uh, I'd like to invite Jack to join me in a brief moment of silence uh, for facts and truth in uh 2017 yeah yeah. uh it's had a good fucking run it you know it really has i don't know when they started uh per se um but i think at the beginning i think facts started when it all started sure um but we killed them it's i mean it it's yeah it was a good run you know Um, and i guess if facts don't matter then we'll say i don't know they, they were only around for like a year they had a good year run facts oh yeah truth who knows? Yeah. No, fact, they're dead. Um, we're, I guess we're going to try to keep the truth alive on here, but really, it's just the two of us. It's a small heartbeat. Um, I would I would like to say, however, that uh, since we are in an era of alternative facts, that I am uh, Poseidon, king of the sea. So uh, And I am straight. Excellent. Well, it's, uh, you know, it's going to be a weird show. So um, today we are covering a topic that you'll probably be hearing a lot about in uh, the future. You know, coming months, especially now that the administration has officially begun, and that is sanctions, uh, also known as embargoes. Um, they are, uh, well, Jack, why don't you tell us a little bit about what they are? So, hey, let's talk about them. Well, okay, first of all, you got something a little bit wrong ish. Well, it's, I mean, is it wrong if facts aren't real? I mean, oh, okay. Well, you have an alternative fact to my facts okay. that I have on the screen. We got to keep that clear. Okay. <laughs> so basically, sanctions, the definition is there they are penalties applied by one or more countries against another country, group, or individual. Um, so they can include several different time types of things, so they can be exercised in several different ways. Okay. Um, which include tariffs which are just taxes imposed on goods um, imported from another country. Okay. Quotas, which is a limit of how many goods can be either imported from another country or 
exported to that country. Okay. Embargoes. So you kind of said they were the same thing. I mean, yes, they are, but embargoes falls under the header. It's of, like a, it's gotcha. a type. Um, Sanction is the umbrella under right. which that falls. Okay. Um, embargoes are a trade restriction that prevents a country from trading with another. Okay. Um, non-tariff barriers. Um, they are non-tariff, so they're not tax restrictions, but they, um, they are re- applied to imported goods. So it can include like licensing and packaging requirements, um, making product standards different for that specific country. So they can be really broad or just nitpicky. Right. Well, I think the idea behind non-tariff barriers is it's like it's not a tariff, but it is economically difficult for the country that it's being imposed on to meet these requirements. Sure. So it'd be like um, the difference between being banned from Facebook completely and just having like a block from a certain page within Facebook. Kind or something of, like kind that. of, uh, it's, it's more like it, it's, it's, it's more like instead of saying, Oh, we're going to charge a 30 cent tax on every apple we import from you. It's going to be the same price, but we're going to need you to stamp all of those apples with a little smiley face. Excellent. Um, that makes sense. Um, uh, and then there's like assets and uh, asset freezes and seizures, um, which basically prevent assets owned by a country or individual from being sold or moved. It just freezes them entirely. So I, I had heard you, you mentioned tariffs earlier. So that leads me to believe that this wasn't. Uh, these aren't things that were just uh, created by the American government over the course of its history because one of the original issues that we had uh, as colonists was with Britain imposing tariffs on us, correct? Correct. Um, So the concept of sanctions, not necessarily the word, um, but the concept has been around from basic, at least the time of the ancient Greeks. Really? Okay. Mm -hmm. So Athens actually imposed a trade embargo on its neighbor Megara in 432 BC. Interesting. In response to the kidnapping of three uh, Aspasian women. Um, now, I remember that as being a god of the sea, Poseidon. I dealt with a lot of this stuff, at least the higher up areas mm-hmm. on Mount Olympus. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. So you would you would have been around for it's, this. I remember vaguely. There was a lot of In wine. your alternative history. Yes, yes. As Poseidon. As Poseidon. God of the sea. Um, so the embargo didn't really make Megara do anything. Okay. Um, and in fact, kind of helped the sp- to spark the Peloponnesian War. Interesting. Um, and actually, I have a fun little thing. Aristophanes wrote a play called The Arcanians. Um, and in it, one of the characters actually basically just says, yeah, these embargoes were were why we started the war. Interesting. So here's actually the whole like section, the quote. Break it down, down, So down. Then Pericles, aflame with ire on his Olympian height, let loose the lightning, caused the thunder to roll, upset Greece, and passed an edict which rang like the song, that the Megarians be banished both from our land and from our markets and from the sea and from the continent. Meanwhile, the Megarians, who were beginning to die of hunger, begged the Lacedaemonians to bring about the abolition of the decree, of which those harlots were the cause. Uh, so you see how all of this is actually entering into it. Um, so several times we refused their demand, and from that time there was a horrible clatter of arms everywhere. You will say that Sparta was wrong, but what should she have done? That was beautiful. 
Um, so yeah. And that kind of gets into, and I'm going to get into it a little bit about, does this shit even work? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously it leads to great literature and, and art. I mean, cause that was a, a lovely passage. Right. Um, I, I should be an actor. Yeah. Um, and have you ever thought about being gay or just straight? Uh, well in an alternate truth, okay. I'm gay. Okay. Gotcha. But in this alternate truth now in 2017 post Kellyanne. I am straight. I it's it's all coming back to me now. Um, okay, so even then, it was called more of an edict um, or decree it, that that just said, "Oh, we're not trading with you." It, it didn't have a name of like a sanction or an embargo, really. But it's like you're starting to see the wheels turning in that political mindset of as a, a whole, we can accomplish right, we right. And I'm to. sure it's been throughout history of like, well, we're not trading with you anymore because you, you sit at a pissed different us table. off. Yeah. Um, but k- kind of jumping forward a lot of years to 16th, the mid 1500s. Okay. Um, that's kind of the time the word sanction was first recorded in English. Okay. But it meant a law or a decree. Okay. And even then, like, I, I guess if you go back to the ancient Greeks and stuff, it was more of a law or de- a decree um, as opposed to a penalty. Okay. In, um, enacted to cause one to obey a law or decree, which is what this the word sanction began referring to around 1635. So would it be back at that time frame, was it more of like a decree that the people should actively not try to do this? Or was it that the government as or this entity as a whole was no longer participating with them? You know what I'm saying? Like, Well, I mean, it's, it's a decree of saying we're not trading with you anymore. They didn't have a word for it. No but, way to enforce it really with, with like outside of just saying it and I mean, they, ground power. I mean, they did. They, they obviously, the decree against the Magonians or whatever, Megarians worked. Mm-hmm. Um, because they started starving because they weren't getting money because they weren't trading anymore. Right. Um, which is kind of the idea behind a sanction of it is a punishment to make someone obey you. Right. Um, and did you say why they, why they originally imposed it? Was it for their behavior or was it something about they them they didn't enjoy? They stole or? three women. Shit. The Makarians uh, kidnapped, <laughs> kidnapped three women and, uh... The Greeks wanted them back. <laughs> uh, the Athenians kind of wanted them back. Um, Interesting. And they were like, well, we're going to impose these embargoes until you give them back. And then when you listen to the Aristophanes things, basically, um, like, the Megarians were like, hey, uh, can you stop? Can you stop? Um, and we were like, no, give them back. <laughs> And so, so then that's there was what, a that's when women's rights really mattered was yeah. back then. Um, I'm sure, like, I didn't look into it, but I'm sure the women that they stole were property. Yeah. Like, that makes sense. Yeah. Maybe not. And maybe that's overreaching, but it, it's a very big possibility that it wasn't just everyday women. We'll have our fact checker interns get in on that <laughs> yeah. later on. Um, so. <laughs> Here's a co- I mean here's a little bit of a rundown of some big sanctions in history. Okay. And this is globally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um so 1892 and 1894 like between those two times European pacifists were kind of debating how to enforce a proposed system of international arbitration. Okay. 
Um, and then a be- Belgian law professor named Henry Lafontaine persuaded delegates to enforce peaceful sanctions. And then, so that's kind of, he actually said the word sanctions, and that's when that word started really circulating in governments, governmental okay. bodies. And it became more broadly defined throughout to encapsulate these these other entities. Right. Or... Well, it's the word used, sanctions is basically the word used to say, sanction, the definition of sanction is uh, a penalty enacted to cause one to obey a law or decree. And then tariffs, quotas, embargoes, those are the penalties. Okay, that makes sense. Um. So yeah, basically... Sanctions really started entering into governmental bodies around 1892-1894 as a word that meant penalties to make someone do what you're saying. Okay. Interesting. Um, I, I'm sure they – and again, I haven't done it – I didn't dig super, super deep, but I'm sure the idea was around for a while. I right. mean, it is. It's back to the ancient Greeks. Sure. But they didn't have a word for it in English until about – about the 1600s and then about the eight, end of the 1800s is when it really started to enter into government. But, bodies. I mean, in some in most capacities, it was probably in some form of practice. Yeah. With, just without a name, right, probably. Right, So, um, um, uh, After World War One in 1918, there were a couple of, of French statesmen, um, and I did not write down their names because I was not going to attempt to pronounce them. Uh, they called for a society of nations okay. that could isolate a recalcitrant nation, which is basically a country who won't cooperate with authority or discipline. Someone going rogue. By applying sanctions. So this country isn't saying what we do. We should apply sanctions to them. So it's just a bunch of like people who are slowly getting on board with the idea of of sanctioning a country that won't do what you want them to do. Okay. Um, in 1919, Woodrow Wilson advocated for absolute boycotts um, in which all citizens of an aggressor country would be unable to trade, communicate, or do business with League members. Because he was trying to set up the League of Nations at that point. Sure. Um, the first of these sanctions failed in 1935. Okay. Uh, because when they were working to enact them, the British and French weakened them before they went into effect. Um, and they're actually against Mussolini because they wanted him to withdraw his troops from Abyssinia. Okay. Which is now Ethiopia. Gotcha. And he didn't fucking do it. He was like, okay, whatever. Fuck off. Like, right. (laughs) And he just stayed there. And Mussolini was he was in the Axis powers, but he eventually ended up switching over to an Allied power towards the end of the war, right? I don't. If I remember correctly, you didn't ask me to research World I, War. I'm II. trying to remember because I constantly called my Italian friend a flip flopper. Okay, you know, uh, per- pertinent to that fact, but I seem to remember them eventually turning within. So because they're a member of the the Security Council, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Anyway, yeah, sorry. I'll fuck off. Continue. Um, And then there were sanctions in 19... Trade sanctions against Japan um, from by the U.S. And that kind of made Japan go, well, we're going to enter World War II now. Um, (laughs) So 
that's kind of the idea of like do sanctions even work sometimes it does drive countries into war um it seems and and this is something that i came across in my research it seems that when you like when you're dealing with sanctions that involve multiple countries it really relies on a, a um a competent relationship between those countries to not undermine one another because mm-hmm. the smallest slip can completely eradicate that whole right. process and just kind of uh you know run it run it right off the rails right. so um and then when they were U- forming the UN post World War 2 um they made sanctions a part of their charter okay they said basically as the UN we're going to be able to impose and enforce sanctions. Um, so, and then it also centralized the act of decision-making in the Security Council. So that, that solidarity is like what we're talking about, is that if right. everyone stands firm right. on it, then it's going to work. Um, however, during the next kind of war, which was the Cold War, uh, they only imposed mandatory... The UN Security Council only imposed mandatory sanctions twice. Okay. Um, and both were against white minority governments in Rhodesia and South Africa. Interesting. Um, and so, but like at the same time, in independent countries were imposing unilateral sanctions. Right. Um, so, for example, the U.S. embargo of Cuba. Sure, and there, and that's a broad uh, discrepancy too that needs to be uh, recognized. I think when we're talking about sanctions, is that um, UN sanctions, though the U.S. may be a part of them are not exclusive to the United States. Right. The uni- individual countries can and will impose their own sanctions. Um, however, their effectiveness is entirely reliant on a lot of other things like their individual GDP and how much of their importing and exporting supports that. So, yeah. um, so I want to kind of go back and make a distinction. Okay. I said the word unilateral sanction those are sanctions imposed by one country against another okay um so 1v1 right so basically and basically usually it is the embargo type of um sanction or or like an economic sanction so cutting off all trade or financial relations bilateral sanctions means that a group or a block of countries is supporting this sanction um and bilateral sanctions and like you were saying sanctions within that were made by the un are a little less risky Mm -hmm. since it's not one country on the line for the result it's a bunch of nations and they're a little more enforced because the country that the sanction is on is getting it from multiple sides exactly and that's important too because if uh, you know if you had a country, um, I mean obviously you know the United States is a very powerful global uh, entity as far as you know the economy goes. Um, but there are others that uh, you know, if, for example, if Russia or if uh, United States and Great Britain entered into an embargo against a country, but then eventually Britain was like, you know what, uh, fuck it, we're over it, we're gonna start trading with these guys again. That wouldn't necessarily completely override the fact that the U.S. has an embargo on them, but it could make things, you know, not as difficult as originally intended. Um, and that also, in, in the process, hurts the uh, relations between the countries that it originally entered in the treaty. So you see a lot of uh, diplomatic tiptoeing and stuff like this whenever 
these things are going on, uh, particularly in the bilateral ones mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Um, so, yeah. And then there's – I kind of get in a little more about ways to categorize sanctions, um, and it's kind of by the types of trade that they limit. Okay. Um, export sanctions block goods flowing into a country. Import sanctions block good leaving the country. Okay. Um, it's 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 important to note because it's like, well, what which one do we impose? We don't. Wouldn't they have the same effect? They actually don't. Okay. Um, it will result in kind of different ramifications for the uh, sanctioned country. So, like blocking goods and services from entering a country will usually have a lighter impact um, than blocking goods or services uh, that are leaving that country. Sure. And, uh, I mean, is that simply because of supply and demand? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So export sanctions, which are the ones that block it from entering the country, it's interesting that it's kind of backwards. Right. I was just thinking that. I, 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 I think it's based on the country that's imposing the sanction. So, so the export sanction is so if the U.S. Export, yeah, yes, if right. the U.S. is imposing an export sanction, it's saying we are not going to send. We are not going to, to accept uh, their exports. Yeah. Um. Oh no! It's export sanctions block goods flowing into a country. I don't know. Whatever. Fuck. <laughs> Um, but yeah, export sanctions can create an incentive to substitute the blocked goods for something else. Sure. So we're saying, oh, you can't get anything from anywhere else. It's like, well, okay, we can't get apples from from US. We'll get app. We'll get pears from China. Whatever. Sure. It is. Yeah. Um, Chinese pears are the best. Yeah. <laughs> um, <coughs> But a good way, a good export sanction might be the blocking of like technological know-how sure. from entering the sanctioned country. Okay. Um, because uh, it that would be harder for that country to create in-house. Yeah, absolutely. Um, blocking that. their a country's export, um, increases the possibility that the target country will experience a more substantial because they can't that an economic burden because they can't sell their stuff now which is why i think uh especially whenever we get into the countries that we have uh have current sanctions against or have had them in the past you'll see why oil dependency and energy has been such a topic for the past you know like 100 years easily uh, definitely very much so uh in the past 50 or 60 um because a lot of these countries that we're dealing with where you're seeing things involving um, OFAC and you're seeing uh, terror, you know, state-sponsored terrorism, you know, the Middle East has the oil. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, and that's why you're seeing, you know, things like the North Dakota pipeline, seeing us try to figure out ways to get oil and access in our own country because the ramifications of lifting these sanctions sometimes aren't worth it or at least are right. hotly contested. Um, and then just a little more about sanctions and then we're going to get into it like, is any of this even really effective? Yeah, like, I'm wondering. Like, and it, you know, do you, do you think it's worth the shit at all? I mean, right, yeah. right. Is it worth it? Yeah. Um, but so there is kind of a variation to how the sanctions are leveled and who they may target. Okay. Um, we've been talking mostly about sanctions that target a country as a whole. Okay. Um, but they can target specific industries within that country. Um, such as like an embargo on the sale of weapons okay. or like you were saying, petroleum. Sure. Um, so ba- like 
even since 1979, uh, the United States and European Union have prohibited the import or exports of goods and services to Iran. Yes. Um, and then they can also target individuals, um, such as political figures or business leaders, um, such as uh, the EU and the U.S. sanctions on Putin's allies. Mm-hmm. Um, it it that type of sanction is designed to call financial difficulties for like a small set of individuals rather than the whole country's population. So if you're seeing like things like uh, military coups or uh, like rebellion groups overthrows things like that, that's where you're starting to see those support networks lapse because those individual things are targeted. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, it, like you said, it, basically I was just about to get to it. it you, <laughs> you'll mostly see that kind of strategy used when uh, political and economic power is concentrated in the hands of a relatively small group of individuals yes. who have international financial interests. Sorry, I didn't mean to step on your toes, man. Uh, it's fine. I'm I'll, the guy, you know, as king of the sea, sometimes I get a little ahead of myself. It just happens. Uh, you know, as a straight man, you it made me <laughs> so angry that you mansplained something oh. to me. Um. So let's then just get to the fucking, does it work? Is it worth it? Um, so there were two authors uh, named Gary Hofbauer and Jeffrey Chott, uh, and they wrote a book called Economic Sanctions Reconsidered. In it, they kind of argued that the effects are usually disappointing. Okay. Um, a lot of, they, they kind of talked to a lot of scholars or did some research, and a lot of them basically concluded, concluded that they're enacted so that governments can appear to be doing something sure um specifically even to their own like constituents okay um so if we were to be pissed off at i don't know uh the the u.n the uk and the president was like oh sanctions against the uk i don't think it would change anything it would just be the we would be like oh good he did something like which yeah um as long like, as it keeps the Jacksonville Jaguars from going over there and playing, I'm so sick of watching football games at 9.30 in the morning. It's ridiculous. Uh, me, as a straight man, I'm me too. Grr, football. Grr, football. <laughs> um, so, for, <laughs> Go Falcons. Uh, so, for example, uh, the sanctions the U.S. had against Cuba were lifted in 2016, and a lot of people were like, yeah, restoring full diplomatic relations with Cuba may actually have more effect than the... Uh, than the than the sanctions yeah ever did um and i and i'll get into a little bit of that especially because um some of the uh the stuff that we're going to be seeing in the administration uh you know dis- despite the fact that um a lot of the rhetoric and a lot of the stuff that you'll see uh points to the idea that you would think that um trump and his administration would be very hardlined on lifting any kind of sanctions or anything like that it could be quite the contrary um, specifically in a business interest uh, mindset, but we'll get mm-hmm. into that uh, a little bit later on. Um, I have like half a page left, so shut up. I'm going to shut up. <laughs> I'm going to sip my peppermint mocha. <laughs> um, the other There's other sanctions um, by like the U.S., Europe, and British Commonwealth against South Africa in 85 to 91. South Africa, the country? Yes. Okay. And then sanctions against Burma in 1988 by the U.S., Europe and Japan, they really just seemed more designed to make their country's constituents happy or to just kind of make a moral statement as opposed to actually forcing the countries to do or change anything. 
So it's uh, would you say then it's fairly it's still kind of a subject of debate as to mm-hmm. whether or not it's I mean what's based on your research uh, I mean can I ask what your so, opinion is personally I will say and I kind of fall on this a little bit one of the main concerns is, especially against with countries that are sanctions against countries uh, is that they tend to affect the poor people living in the sanctioned country rather than the government of that country. And especially if you're dealing with these in the first place for things like military coups or overthrows, mm-hmm. those people are already you know being targeted pretty heavily. You would think, yeah. you know. And I, 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 unless they're the ones. I saw this a little bit in my research, but there was never anything that like said it outright. But from history and stuff like that, the sanctions imposed on. For example, like Germany after uh-huh. World War One, were something that a lot of people rallied around because w- Hitler was like decrying them and saying like, "Oh, they imposed things that hurt you. They took your money, blah blah blah." I, I he tied it to Jews, which wrong, but <laughs> it, it does have that effect a little bit of when sanctions are applied to a country, especially a poor, already poor country. That country can and does tend to rally around its own government because now the government has someone they can't point they can point the finger at sure that's not themselves um it, like so for example there were sanctions um against south africa during apartheid and it really didn't cause the national party to abandon apartheid but it kind of di- like they didn't do anything because of the sanctions, but they were already pretty poor. Sure. Like it was just costing so much to be racist. Um, and the sanctions hurt a little, it just added to that burden. It I, didn't really make them do anything. It almost seems like it's one of those things where, uh, if, if you know, you're a country like that where you're already not dealing with a lot of support from America in the first place, it's almost like, um, you know, on the economic level, you're used to not having those things. But if, you know, things were to work out for the better where the U.S. was like, okay, you can be in our club now, there's the, uh, you know, the eventual hope or promise of new trade relations of getting some of those better things that Mm -hmm. you wanted that you might not have been in your grasp before because of the way your government worked. But it's all a bunch of what ifs. I mean, there's no guarantee that once your country gets its shit together that all of a sudden the u.s is gonna be like here we're gonna airdrop some macbooks like you right, know right. become a dubstep dj or whatever whatever you do i, just, I, I wish the whole country <laughs> of south africa were dubstep gjs well, only I mean, to be fair diet word comes from south africa Diet, yeah so. i will i was gonna be like well we got ninja and yolandi you know what two out of however many are in south is africa. that their main export i think at this point is probably is diet word. <laughs> that's uh, amazing uh, a couple other things. So going back to Halfbauer and Chott, they claimed that in their studies, um, in their book, that thirty only 34% of the cases of economic sanctions that they studied were successful. That's throughout history or? They studied around probably like 100-ish probably, sanctions throughout history. Okay. And they discovered about 34 of them. So 34% okay. were successful. So about, so about one third. And then another dude named Robert A. Page, Pape, sorry, re-examined their study. He kind of he was like, "Well, really, yeah. If you squint, some of these are successful, but there's really only like five of their successes that stand out as like 
you can say it was only the sanctions that caused whatever the outcome was. Yeah. It almost it almost makes you think of like if you were Which kid. brought down the total success rate to like 4%. Oh shit. It, it almost reminds me of like if you were a kid and you had a Sega and a Nintendo and your parents were like you're grounded from Sega and you're like, "Well, fuck it, I'm just going to play Nintendo then." And you just kind of like figure out, you know, another option or an alternative right. route if it's Well, possible. I think what Pape was do, was saying is kind of like, "Yeah, the, I think they saw like forty of their cases um, were were successes. Okay, but I think what he was saying is like, yeah, but yes, these countries had sanctions imposed against them um, to make something happen, and the thing happened, but it may have happened anyway without the sanctions. Like, and the sanctions only played like a small part, so you can't." say sanctions worked a hundred percent on these you only found five of those 40 that were like yeah this is a direct result of the sanctions being imposed okay um so you got to figure out how to quantify that value as well like right you know right interesting um and give yourself a big it's quantitative versus qualitative kind of stuff um and then finally i kind of asked the question because i was getting a lot of the research i was looking at was kind of not anti-sanctions but like Eh, about sanctions. Sure. And I was like, then why the hell do we keep doing them? Like, what is their use if if only 4% uh, of whatever they, they, of probably about 100, 120, um, were successful? Sure. And honestly, it's mostly because countries see it as a good midpoint between just yelling, stop it! At a country and all that war. (laughs) That makes sense. Um, And I mean, you kind of need that midpoint, I think, as well, you know, where you're not just stomping your feet, um, but you're also not, you know, throwing rocks uh, immediately. Um, It's kind of like, hey, you know, if if you don't knock it off, we're going to stop sending you, you know, whatever. Right. So, yeah, basically countries like them and typically, typically it is larger countries imposing them on smaller countries. Or same size countries, um, but sometimes it is like medium sized country and medium sized country. But it's very much they like them because you get to have this big theatrical display. Um, you get to say you're doing something, sure, but you don't have to spend the money to go to war and 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 you don't lose the lives in war that you would and i think another important part of it as well is that a lot of sanctions especially ones that are imposed through the united states can be done so as executive orders so they're not tying up a lot of time in senate Mm -hmm. and things like that it's basically you know we'll decide to do it and we'll do it um which is it's i think it's an important distinction as well um but i will say that uh, as kind of a counterpoint that in uh, a lot of my research, and especially with some of the ones that have um, uh, had sanctions lifted in you know recent years, at least in the past 20, 30 years, you're seeing countries that, um, despite overall uh, you know economic and, and total prosperity, they have been making strides and efforts to remedy the issues uh, that the sanctions originally were mm-hmm. put for, strictly because it doesn't hurt to be in the United Nations and the U.S.'s right. good graces. I mean, it's as you know as big a dicks as the United States can be sometimes. We still have a lot you know, mm-hmm. to offer the rest of the world, yeah. and, and leaders aren't blind to that. So you know? I guess I, what you asked me where I come down on them, and I think I kind of come down eh, 
about him. Yeah. Like, I see, I can see why countries and governments like them because it, it is a good way to show, and especially if it's a smaller country doing something that we don't like and they think they're just getting away with it because we're not talking about it, imposing sanctions on them goes, oh, they are paying attention. Right. Like, I I don't know. I, I, think, I think sometimes they may be enacted a little quickly. And we should try diplomacy a little more. Okay. Um, I, I don't know. I think, especially now, with more targeted sanctions against specific people or groups of people, I don't know how... I, it, it, I think it hurts whole countries less. Um, I think if you're smart about them, they can be useful tools, but I don't think they're an end-all solution. Okay. That makes sense. Um you want to you get into some of the countries that we currently have sanctions against? And what's yeah, going let's on get with to them? your shit. Okay, let's go to my shit. Um, so, uh, I'm done. My two pages are done. Let's get to your... My two pages took a half an hour. Let's see how long your nine pages take. All right. Um, Although, to be fair, I, I don't interrupt you as much. I don't have as many questions, probably. That's Because I do have the base stuff. That's true. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, this might spur some questions, you know, or maybe I'm just really fucking good at talking. Who knows? So, um... You uh, you mentioned Iran earlier. I'm going to get to Iran uh, a little bit later down this list because there's uh, some pretty interesting ones. Uh, North Korea, we have had sanctions against since 1950. Um, we have severe sanctions against them. Uh, we justify them by the human rights abuses and their North Korea nuclear program. We have no diplomatic relations with North Korea. I mean, we are – they're just – you know, they're dead to us for the most part mm-hmm. aside from uh, – I actually – I'm going to pull something up. Look at you interrupting me already, you, you son of a bitch. You go, spoken you just talk, like a, I'll listen, I've got headphones on, you're right in my spoken ear. Spoken just like a straight guy. Um, so uh, Sudan, uh, we enacted sanctions against in 2002, uh, also due to human rights records, uh, as well as Sudanese support for the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, and uh, accusations that Sudan has harbored Islamic terrorists and extremists. Um, it's basically a, a series of economic sanctions. I didn't dig real deep into the individual sanctions because with a lot of these... Um, especially ones that are listed as state sponsors of terrorism, we pretty much just cut them off. Um, Syria, uh, since 1986, um, cited for uh, poor human rights, uh, the present civil war, and being listed as a state sponsor of terrorism. Um, Cuba, since 1960, mm-hmm. which you mentioned, um, uh, that was originally— but that was just raised in 2016, right? Uh, 2015. Um, but, well, here's, here's what happened. Um, it was because of their human rights record— we restored diplomatic relations with them on July 20th, 2015. However, the commercial, economic, and financial embargoes still exist. So okay. we still have these, uh, these sanctions we're on them. But at least talking to them. Yes. Uh, Obama was the first president to v- visit Cuba in 88 years. Um, it led to some uh, lifting of travel restrictions, because I don't know if you remember hearing a little bit about Jay-Z and Beyonce going to visit Cuba as well. There was some, right. some flack over that. Um, uh, Hove... Uh, fewer restrictions on remittances, and their U.S. banks have access to the Cuban financial system, which I did a little research into. It's not a violation of uh, the financial embargoes. It's more or less kind of like being able to move money back and forth between like state allowed banks. It's all very you know uh, financial language stuff. But um, we uh, and we did establish a U.S. embassy again. Um, which closed after they became uh, allied with the USSR in 1961. Um, so uh, Iran, as you mentioned, 
Um, we have had sanctions with them since 1979. Uh, near total economic embargo on all economic activities, including a ban on all Iranian imports, uh, sanctions on Iranian financial institutions, and a restriction on the sale of aircraft and repar repair parts, as well as arms embargoes. Uh, this was a response to the Iranian Revolution. It has been rapidly expanded over recent years due to the nuclear program. Um, on May 30th of 2013, OFAC, uh, which is the uh, Office of Foreign Asset Control, they issued Iranian License D, uh, which authorizes the exportation or re-exportation directly or indirectly from the U.S. or by U.S. persons to persons in Iran of certain services, software, and hardware indicated to person incident to personal communications. So basically a kind of a subjugate to this sanction, but it, it's a lot of red tape, a lot of paperwork, and it basically can't be anything that could be used for defense or anything like that whatsoever. Right. Um, so uh, we also... I, I So a friend of mine actually shared um, an interesting article. He, he taught in North Korea for a year. Okay. Um, and so there's a... It's Asia Press, and... Uh, the subsection is Rimjin Gang, which is reports by North Korean journalists within North Korea. Okay. And it's just an interesting, basically, and it's not an article. It's really just a listing of the market price since the imposition of new economic sanctions. Okay. Uh, so, because on November 30th, uh, the Security Council um, basically approved new sanctions against North Korea. Sure. Um, it intended to slash North Korea's exports of coal. Uh, with an annual sales cap, so there's the cap one um, of forty. The goal, the goal, cap is four hundred point nine million. Okay. Um, or seven point five million metric tons, whichever is lower. Okay. Um, and then it also prohibited North Korea from exporting mineral resources such as copper, silver, zinc, or nickel. Interesting. Um, and this reportedly would cost the lose the Kim Jong-un regime $800 million of U.S. dollars. Okay. Um, worth of foreign currencies. Interesting. So it's been about 50 days since the approval of these sanctions. Uh, and Asia Press reporting partner, I'm reading right off the Asia Press, uh, conducted a survey on market prices of staple food, Ga staple food, gasoline, and the exchange rate for North Korean won to the Chinese RMB. Okay. Um, and really, the market price near the China-North Korea border were more or less the same uh, with that of Pyongyang. Interesting. Um, so, I mean, it would make you think that... The, the market price of white rice has decreased by 20%. Corn price has increased by 25%. Damn it. Um <laughs> But honestly, the contrast is hard to explain for now. Sure. Um, they're still looking into it. Price of the gasoline and diesel oil has been rising by 10 to 20% from the beginning of 2017. Um, but that could be... I mean, those fluctuate it, all the time. It, it, it's probably just... It's surging here. It's it, it's wildly varying here because uh, just the international oil price. It would only, I mean, it would make you think probably that but over... This, and well, then the exchange rate uh, from the yuan to the RMB has been stable really yeah um so i think it is interesting to note that these sanctions are very much targeted things that wouldn't necessarily hurt everyday north koreans sure and I they can still buy their staple foods um gas prices have gone up but they've gone up here like it, yeah i mean and that, i think that marks an important distinction because those things that you're talking about are you know coal 
obviously an energy source and uh, you know the minerals and stuff like that. Um, you know, which can be broken down for everything from, you know, base material parts, computer parts, or, you know, precious minerals, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and plus, I mean, you would imagine if with sanctions uh, imposed since the 1950s, they've probably figured out how to function without U.S. aid. I mean, in one way or another. Um, but that is interesting. I mean, you, you know, especially when you see these new things, um, I do know that one of the most recent sanctions that was, uh, or the, the reviving of sanctions for Iran, I want to say, was uh, written by Obama, but never actually signed for him, by him. Just kind of enacted, you know, so easily subjugated if need to be. But, right. Uh, so um, I just thought yeah, that was that's interesting. interesting. I remembered as soon as you said North Korea, I was like, oh yeah, Steve shared a thing about market prices after sanctions, and I think it's just an interesting real world. Yeah. So I mean, we're actually seeing yeah. how that that affects. Um, no, that's interesting, and also I think it's it's cool that that breaks down the you know the specific items that are being targeted for sanctions. Um, so at, at, towards the end of Obama's administration, he lifted a couple bans. Um, they were, uh, there were bans in Burma, which was uh, uh, originally known as the Union of Myanmar. Um, they were initially imposed in May 1997 as an executive order banning most new U.S. investment in economic development of resources, and uh, more official sanctions were passed in 2003. Um, it uh, the sanctions were placed for human rights political reasons. Um, it was ruled by a uh, military junta, a committee of military leaders that makes political decisions for the full country. Um, so uh, I had military junta in my research at some point too, nice. but I don't remember. It's an interesting term. Oh yeah, um, it was Burma. It was the Burma. Yeah, thing. yeah. Um, so Obama lifted those sanctions in October 2016, following five years of progress and political reforms. After decades of uh, oppressive military rule, so that's kind of one of those things I was talking about earlier, where you're seeing, you know, these changes are being made. The people that you know the sanctions were originally imposed upon are somehow cast out of power after you know the end of a civil war or an overthrow of some type. There's some kind of economic progress, and I mean, you know, it's it's a quid pro quo thing. I mean, when the United States is lifting the sanction, they're going to profit from it as well. It's not just like, well, good job, here's a gold star. Like they want to make money too. They're not just otherwise, you know, what's the point? Um, and then another one was uh, the Ivory Coast, um, which was imposed by Bush in 2006 for blocking 2003 peace podca- uh, podcast, 2003 peace progress. Um, 2003 peace podcast. <laughs> that was a good year. That was a good year for the peace podcast. <laughs> um, the, That's our alternate name. <laughs> peace alter- podcast. The alternate facts. Um, Obama lifted the 12-year embargo. Uh, there was also an asset freeze and travel bans. Um Ivory Coast is uh, the world's biggest cocoa producer, which I didn't know. Mm. So, um, you know, that's another thing where you see, uh, you know, there's going to be a benefit to the United States as well by lifting these embargoes. Um, the uh, uh, It was originally sanctioned for human rights violations. Uh, it was in the 70s. It was home to Africa's strong, one of Africa's strongest economies because of the booming coffee and cocoa exports. But the uh, economic decline through the 80s and 90s brought about a ton of social problems that uh, led to a civil war in 1999. The president uh, was on trial before the International Criminal Court for Crimes Against Humanity as of 9-2016. So oh, wow. right around the time that these were being lifted. Um, so combined, the Treasury Department, the Commerce Department, and the State Department currently list embargoes against 31 countries or territories. Um, I'm not going to read all of them, but yeah. is among, that just U.S. sanctions? That's though? just U.S. sanctions that I have. Yeah. So uh, among those are Venezuela, Afghanistan, the Balkans, uh, the Crimea regions, 
um, you know, uh, stuff like that. So when I was reading all this, I was wondering, do other countries have sanctions against us? I mean, are there are there yeah. other political spectrums that are like? That's a good question. Do they? Um, so what I really found was uh, not really. Um, so uh, there are a little things here and there. Um, in 2015, Canada and Mexico uh, went, uh, went to the World Trade Organization seeking to impose over $3 billion in sanctions against U.S. exports and retaliation against contentious meat labeling laws. Um, they basically said that uh, the U.S. legislators signaled they'd plan to repeal the 2009 laws, which Canada and Mexico said make their meat products more expensive. Um, it was basically the country of origin labeling. So if it mm-hmm. said it was raised in Mexico but processed in the United States, some people would be like, well, you know, I don't want that. Also, it costs more money to have those specific labelings right. made and things like that. Well, I, it, I vaguely remember hearing about that. If you think about, about it, though, too, like when I mentioned, it's it's a little bit of of a sanction sure. to impose that. Yeah. Um, yeah, because there's the non-tariff kind of like sanctions. Yeah. And that's kind of what that falls under is, yeah, we're not going to raise prices on you, but you got to add labels. Exactly. Um, and I mean, I think that. But I, I don't I even know if there were any. I don't think there was any sanction reason for doing that. It's just because people in America are weird and really just want to know where their food comes from. Exactly. Which okay, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, we grade beef in this country, but has anyone ever bought grade D beef? I, you know, I don't know. Maybe McDonald's. Um, uh, so um, I, I, I was looking, uh, and I found this answer. Um, I, I'd like to vet it a little bit more. So I will say. Uh, you know, this is taken with a grain of salt. However, it did seem, from what I, I know and what I had checked, it seems to be fairly straight on. So the question asked was, what if countries impose sanctions on U.S. the same as we impose? Um, and it basically said that the global and U.S. economy would slide into a serious depression. Mm-hmm. The U.S. has the largest shareholding of the world, but bank, asterisk, I need to check that. So all the poor countries with U.S. loans would be in an awkward position where they either keep doing business with the U.S. or default on their loans. Two yeah. of the largest tech companies, Apple and Microsoft, would likely withdraw to entirely U.S. markets, which, as you were talking about earlier, technology, I mean, that's a, a big thing. Um, and a lot of stuff is, you know, even though the hubs are here, manufacturing, things of that nature are integral to uh, world economies and other places. Right. That's I kind of mentioned at the end of mine of like typically sanctions are by bigger countries to smaller countries because smaller countries have a lot to lose by – imposing sanctions on larger countries because exactly. they're already dependent on the larger countries so it's rare that you'll hear oh uh cambodia imposed a sanction on the uk like right. what what fucking leg do you have to stand on cambodia exactly. yeah. i'm so mad at you right now in my head <laughs> you've been bitching about cambodia for weeks it's uh. Um, so straight men don't like Cambodia. They don't, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's just not good. It's not good over there. Um, they, another thing they said is that the U S could retaliate by using its food power since we're the largest food exporter on earth asterisk. I don't know that for hundred percent sure. It sounds plausible though. I mean, we have, uh, you know, whatever, um, millions of people around the world from developed nations to developing nations rely on U S food. Um, at the time that the U S imposed sanctions on Russia, the U.S. was radically increasing its oil production, which made the sanctions on Russia have less of an impact on the global right. economy. Um, um, also, something I forgot to mention was mentioned. Sanctions do, will, can, and do have an impact on the nation or nations imposing the sanctions, but it's usually lesser. Yes. And, um, uh, and like you were saying, like if, if, if 
the U.S. like U.S. imposing a sanction on Mexico or whatever would probably have ramifications. We get a lot of food from them. Sure, like we import a lot of stuff from them. Luckily, and the it drugs would hurt are coming us. here illegally, so right. my weekends are going to be completely unaffected as far as that goes. Um, so uh, the the last thing I want to get into, and uh, I it's going to just be a brief oversight on three of the major ones that you're going to be hearing about uh, a lot in the in the upcoming weeks. Um, are the current administration views. We touched briefly on uh, you know, Obama's administration, how he had lifted some sanctions. There was backlash uh, one way or the other. I mean, a lot of people weren't happy about the idea of, of reopening communications with Cuba. But, I mean, to be fair, Fidel Castro is dead. I mean, you know, it's, it's to some he was a, a huge military leader that did uh, insane, insanely great things for the people. And to others, he was a vicious, you know, vicious guy. So, um, you know, there, there are going to be lots of changes. Uh, and uh, the three countries that we're going to be looking most at, I think, in the coming years are going to be uh, Iran, uh, Cuba, and Russia overall. Um, My three favorites. Yes. Uh, so um, Trump has said earlier that he, uh, in, in previous uh, speaking and tweets, he has spoken that he would terminate the Iran nuclear deal and with it the sanctions rollback that has taken place over the last year although actually convincing the rest of the world to reimpose sanctions on Iran would be a monumental feat of diplomacy. Now, I'll explain to you real quick why that is the way it is. So the Iran nuclear agreement uh, happened, um, and it's, it, part of it was the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. So the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action was a, uh, it was a, a collective um, agreement uh, involving five members of the Permanent Security Council plus one, which was known as the, the PS plus one um and the the permanent security members plus one are china france germany russia the uk and the united states so they all entered into a collective agreement which basically rolled back some of the sanctions and things involving iran but it was uh pertinent on a lot of compliance from iran Uh, they had to redesign convert and reduce their nuclear facilities as well as accept additional protocol um, this was to lift all nuclear-related economical sanctions, freeing up tens of billions in oil revenue and frozen assets. Um, so this also required that uh, the International Atomic uh, Energy Agency verified Iran after they uh, met all this protocol. So it wasn't just a fly-by-night deal. This was a heavily orchestrated thing that uh, it required a lot of work. So this is kind of what I was speaking about earlier when I was talking about uh, if one com- one country goes, you know, drops out of an agreement or backpedals on it, you're it, it becomes a bigger thing when it's bilateral. Right. Um, so uh, basically, it, it's um, the the joint comprehensive plan of action between uh, agreement between Iran, the United States, and other world powers is an executive agreement, which means that the Obama administration signed it with the uh, without the advice and consent of the U.S. Senate. Therefore, it is not binding the same way a treaty is, and President-elect Trump could try to make good on his campaign promise to renegotiate well, the President deal. Trump now. Yes, yeah. President Trump. Didn't have that updated. Yes. Uh, sorry, that was an alternative fact. <laughs> it's an alternative fact that none of this has happened yet. <laughs> um, so he could renegotiate the deal by imposing more stringent conditions on Iran or applying new nuclear-related sanctions. However, as a diplomatic matter, he would need the consent of the other world powers who signed the deal, and they are less likely to support more U.S. secondary sanctions than penalize that penalized non-U.S. companies for conducting business with Iran. Um, in other words, the likely end state of a unilateral U.S. withdrawal 
uh, from the JCPOA would be a a substantially weaker set of global sanctions against Iran that than those that were in place with that agreement and b a strained multilateral relationship with key allies mm-hmm. that could compromise other sanctions initiatives let alone other force and po- foreign policy priorities of the administration so like I said backpedaling is going to create problems for the agreement and problems for those that we made the agreement with um, and for I- us Exactly, right. and I will say as a, uh, a, a sorry, de- I was standing far away from the mic because I was putting on chapstick. I will say, and as a denim to that, that uh, I saw this the other day. And I don't know if you saw this or not. Uh, there is a uh, House-sponsored bill right now to have the United States withdraw from the United Nations, which is yeah, I saw that. It's interesting. Um, now, you know, I I, th- I that could be a whole, you know the United Nations and all the the implicit details of that could be a podcast all in itself. Right. I will say. That you know, the United Nations was mandated. like you're not even saying an episode. It could be an entire podcast it, just it about the UN. Um, I, I from as nonpartisan as I could possibly say, from a left angle or a right angle, I don't understand why we would ever want to you know re- retreat from the United Nations. However, I'll research it. I'll find out what the point is behind it. I will say that's a representative from Alabama sponsoring the bill, so I don't feel that great about it. But you know, that's neither here nor there. Um, you and I can have a more partisan discussion about it once the microphones are turned off. Exactly. Because I have thoughts, Jason. We, yes, as we all do. Um, so, as, a, as a straight man, my thoughts matter. And, you know, as, uh, as God of the sea, I speak for the fish. So I, I have lots, lots of stuff to speak you have a. I mean, again, not partisan, but as God of the sea, you have a lot to lose if the U.S. leaves the U.N. Because, I mean, you only get to have... You're not a United States citizen. You, yeah. you just get to live here because of a UN sank of, of a UN agreement. I, I live in international waters, technically, right? Um, and I have treasure from all the countries in the world. So I mean, I'm set. I mean, Donald Trump can start a war with a sea to get back those treasures, but he, it's not going to go well. He's going to lose. You're imposing. You're He's, an imposing figure, Poseidon. I am. You know, I've got the trident, and uh, I'm not Neptune. So remember that. That's an important distinction. Um, I actually, when, when I said I was Poseidon, I had to fact check to make sure that was Greek mythology and not Roman mythology. It's like, <laughs> fuck, I'm not. I'm Neptune. Um, <clears throat> um, so, like, as I mentioned, uh, President Obama, on December 15th of 2016, he allowed the Iran Sanctions Extension Act to become law, but he didn't sign it. So it extends the current Iraq sanctions through December 31st, 2026, and it passed Congress with overwhelming support, 419 to 1 in the House and 99 to 0 in the Senate. So, oh, wow. So, you know, it's it's a popular thing. Uh, the, the administration, however, made clear that did not believe in extension Who of the ICE. Who didn't show up that day? Right? <laughs> probably the guy from Alabama who's drafting out to get rid of the United Nations. I'll fucking show them. I'll I'm, fucking I'm, show I'm, them. Iran sanctions. I ain't running nowhere. 99 um, to 0, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> the one person just wasn't fucking there. He was probably just being a dick. Um <laughs> Uh, so he he basically said it was it wasn't necessary that the United States maintains the ability to enforce sanctions outside the JCPOA and to reimpose sanctions if they were failed to meet those commitments. So basically, Iran has stake in it too. You know, they mm-hmm. they stand to lose a lot of money if they don't hold that up. So that'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, now, Cuba, it uh, it may be a little bit more interesting um, because uh, they would have the authority to impose an even tighter embargo than the one that existed when Obama took office in two thousand nine. Um, the one thing that uh, can be said at this early stage is that it doesn't really appear that Cuba is immediately at the top of their priority list. Right. However, um, 
it does show that uh, you know that um, reports from earlier this year said that Mr. Trump's business partners may have in the past been exploring business opportunities in Cuba, and that that may show up over time. Um, it's hard to discount the possibility that the incoming administration could view Cuba as an opportunity for U.S. businesses and demonstrated U.S. leadership in the region. Uh, the business landscape has changed dramatically in recent years. Right. With the entry of major hospitality brands such as the U.S. Starwood, which was recently acquired by Marriott, so a hotel chain, uh, Spain-based Malaya, and others. Uh, Trump has made clear his frustration with the advantages non-U.S. companies enjoy over their U.S.-based competitors, and he may be interested in leveling the playing field for U.S. companies. Um, he even went so far as to call Obama's Cuba policy fine and only yeah. objected to say he would have gotten a better deal. Not to, yeah, not to, like, I don't want to get partisan, but, yeah, seeing Trump and knowing what he's about, I think he would be fine with just completely eliminating the sanctions. Not even just, because, like you said, Obama just kind of got us back talking to them. Yeah, yeah. I think Trump, honestly, would just be like, yeah, we can trade with him. Yeah. It's good for business they're exactly. our neighbors yeah it's i mean what is it 90 miles from florida right. to cuba i mean it's yeah. like it's 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 not a far way to ship stuff it would be great i'm sure he is like you were saying like fucking dollar bills in his eyes for the ways to build hotels there exactly and and establish uh uh resorts or whatever because it's a beautiful country you know? Yeah, I mean, and you know, it's uh, it's a, like I don't, I don't, yeah. It, I, again, I don't want to. I don't. I I like this podcast being more about just general stuff, but I think Cuba isn't. If it's on his radar, it's to get rid of the sanctions. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's uh, and again, in so much as it's even on his fucking radar. Right, and I mean, you know, again, we can't forget while we're talking about this that we're, you know, we're dealing with a, a Republican-led administration. Mm -hmm. uh, they have taken a very hard line against Cuba in the past. Um, you know, their their platform stated that the Cuban people have been betrayed by those who are currently in control of U.S. foreign policy, and uh, they call on the Congress to uphold current U.S. law, which sets conditions for lifting the sanctions on the island, legalization of political parties, and independent media, and free and fair internationally supervised elections. But uh, despite a history of Republican Party unity on Cuba, some Republicans, in particular agricultural state senators who constituents seek increased access to Cuban markets, have broken with the party platform to support bills introduced over the past two years, seeking to lift aspects in those embargoes and continue President Obama's opening. So there's some division within the party there right. um, about some who are, you know, they're really strong-fisted against them and, and what happened, you know, during the Cold War and things of that nature. And others are like, like you said, you know, this is a business Cold War is over. Let's make money. Um, so it's it's going to be touch and go. You know, it's... Uh, it will... That's also my new... My, the second shirt is Cold War is over. Let's make money. Cold War is over. Let's make money. I like it. I will wear it. Uh, probably as a shirt to the gym. Um, so uh, I the last one I want to touch on and the one that's going to be the most important, uh, I think that in, you know, given today's current climate is Russia. Um, so uh, while campaigning... Uh, Trump indicated that he would consider rec recognizing Crimea as Russian territory and lifting sanctions against Russia, which would be a sharp break from the Obama administration as well as the EU position. Uh, the Tillerson pick in particular could telegraph Mr. Trump's intentions regarding Russia policy. As Remember, Tillerson was the, the pick for Secretary of State. Mm -hmm. So in his capacity as ExxonMobil CEO, he reportedly criticized the Obama administration's sanctions against Russia, describing them as futile and inflicting collateral damage on industry. 
Of course, Mr. Tillerson made these comments while acting as the chief executive of a company directly impacted by the sanctions, and it is reasonable to view these comments through the lens of a CEO acting in the best interest of his company. However, during a presidential transition period in which the public is scrambling to divine the intentions of the coming administration, the potential policy implications of Mr. Tillerson's stated petition cannot be ignored. Right. So, uh, you know, it's important to remember, um, you know, everyone's got hands in each other's pockets, but, um, you know, it, it makes you wonder. So what it, would... it, it, it kind of boils down to do you want to make a point or do you want to make a buck? Right. And it's, you know, I, I think especially when you're looking at things like the, the dossier, when you're looking at uh, possible interference with the election, you know, it's the, both sides of the aisle are going to be taking a very long, hard look, and it's going to be hard to just view it through an economic lens, mm-hmm. especially uh, when overall, despite the size of it, Russia's GDP is around the same size as France or, or right. uh, you know, it's not. I, I, I saw it a little bit in my research, and I didn't look into it. Because so, Crimea is... Was a territory uh, by its of its own? Yeah, so it's Cri- a country of its own, right? Crimea is not, um, and Russia went. I want it. It's not a country. It's uh, as um, and the and sanctions against that started in 2014. It's not a country. It's just uh, kind of a, a land barrier. Yeah, which oh, a Russia basically was like, it's mine. Um, so it's that's sort of when the civil war. You know what you've been seeing all that uprising over. Um, so when you're getting into that, um, so is it just like who was living there? Like native people, or it's Ukraine, I believe. Okay, Ukrainian people. Yeah, I think Crimea is a, a section of Ukraine, from what I oh, from what okay. I remember. Yeah. Okay. Um. So and uh, and, and, and feel and free Russia. to fact feel free to fact check. That I, I closed like. the computer already. I'm not doing it. Um. So so we the United States has three main types of sanctions targeting Russia, and to a lesser extent, certain individuals and entities in Ukraine. Uh, designation of individuals and entities as SDNs, which are specifically designated nationals, which are assets blocked, U.S. won't deal with them, period. So kind of the individuals you were talking about earlier. Uh, sectoral sanctions restricted U.S. persons from transacting or dealing in new debt with a maturity of greater than 30 days of designated Russian banks and defense companies. So that's when you're hearing things about new debt, when you're hearing about, um, you know, and, and furthermore, which is a totally different topic, there's been speculation of, uh, you know, things involving Trump's dealings and tax returns and uh, tax history uh, with the the possibility that some of that stuff that he doesn't want seen is new debt. I'm not going to say one way or another. I have no idea. But that's something that they're speaking about. And I want to kind of outline what new debt is in that regard. Right, if you hear it in that yeah. regard. So what they're sp- talking about with new debt is uh, if it has a maturity of greater than 90 days of designated Russian energy companies and new equity issued by designated Russian banks. So that would be within the time frame of the sanctions um, that, that that's involved. And then export restrictions. Um, so that it's important to know that the U.S. sanctions against Russia largely overlap with EU sanctions, although certain EU member states have voiced loud opposition to the statements. Um, so basically what that boils down to, uh, you know, it's, it seems like uh, unlikely that the administration would be in a rush to ease sanctions targeting Russia and especially their defense industry, but it remains a possibility. Um, I mean, there is money to be made there. There are business dealings to be done, but especially when you're dealing with uh, the, you know, Crimea, Ukraine, Putin in general, there's a lot. I mean, and one of the hardline questions that was asked repeatedly during Tillerson's hearing was, would he classify Putin as a uh, war criminal? Um, which is, you know, that's something that is one of the reasons why those sanctions are imposed in the first place. So um, you're going to see lots of vetting. You're going to hear lots of stuff about that. Um, 
And I mean, it boils down to no one knows yet. It's it's literally the first full day of work for the administration. There's going to be a lot of hearsay and a lot of speculation until facts come about. But we want you to be informed, which is the yeah. reason we're doing this in the first place. I mean, that's what this whole thing's about. Um, I guess I you asked me the question, how do you feel about sanctions? Do they work? Or do, do you – like, I see their why. Sure. Um, I think that from what I've uh, – you know, especially when you're looking at things like the Ivory Coast and Burma, I think in smaller countries that really need U.S. economic support or at least support from the United Nations or a larger entity like that, they can and they do work in some regard um, because you're seeing these overthrows by the people um, or by you know uh, military leaders that are shut down or and, and once their that regrowth is done, that's when those sanctions are being lifted. That's when the United States is coming back in and saying, okay, let's let's open the doors for business, let's open the door for trade. And I mean, you know, a lot of these places are, are beautiful. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. Burma, um, Cuba, like you said, I mean, these are places that people will go. The the travel industry would flourish. People would go there. I mean, there's stuff to be done and be seen. But if, if those restrictions exist, you don't go. I mean, you just – you don't go. I mean – You're not allowed. So uh, with bigger countries that have uh, large amounts of military power that have the resources to, uh, you know, either get or to either freely trade or just take what they need from other countries, I think it's a little bit harder, which is – I mean, like, you know, why we're seeing uh, countries that even if they're small in size – you have countries that have extensive amounts of military power, like Iran, like North Korea, that have had sanctions with them for multiple years now and are really not making any effort to have them lifted. I mean, aside from Iran, which we just spoke about, but things like uh, North Korea, um, I mean, they're they're not actively seeking and still consider us enemies in many facets. Um, and I think it's it's kind of like uh, you know, like I said before, grounding a kid. Who you know, if he has an Xbox One, a PS4, and a Wii, and you ground him from one of them, he's gonna find other avenues to entertain right. himself. You know, the point you're making is specifically in conjunction with the amount of damage or hurt that you can inflict on their economy by doing it. I think it does also send, uh, like, even to those big countries like Russia. I, I think it does send a message of like, look, we hate what you're doing. But we clearly don't want to go to war. Exactly. Like, we clearly don't want to go to war. I want to just impose these sanctions to send a message to my constituents that I'm doing something and to send a message to you that we don't like this and we need to work together. Yeah. Because uh, we're two big powers. Like, I mean, Russia is a super, superpower. U.S. is a superpower. Sure. China is a superpower. And impose, you know, the U.S. imposing a sanction on Russia is is definitely sending a message of, look, we rely on you for some stuff. We don't care. We hate that you're doing this thing, but we definitely don't want to go to war. I think for those instances, it may lead people to the table to talk. Yeah, and I mean um, they've been diplomatically. Ar- I think so too. And I mean, even if if they're just put down in an effort to get people to come to a table to come to some kind of agreement and talk then i think that serves some kind of purpose because i think overall anything that we can do to avoid war to avoid violence or to help hinder it is good you know mm-hmm. whether it's uh you know whether it's done through sanctions and you just have to be otherwise. careful that the sanctions don't lead to war exactly because i mean like i like mentioned earlier some of the smaller countries um that can't afford sanctions in the first place start getting 
just drowning. Yeah. And then some charismatic leader comes along and goes, hey, let's blame them. Let's fight them. Yeah. Yeah. No, the I mean. End, and that's how Hitler happened in both in both fiction, in both realities. And uh, I think, uh, you know, speaking of Hitler, um, as, as my sign off today, I would like to, in, in congruence with our uh, strict nonpartisan policy on what we do in this show, I would like to say that whether you're left-leaning or whether you're right-leaning, it's always okay to punch a Nazi. <laughs>